0: Well, good morning. It is wonderful to be together this morning. It's great to see all of you. There are a number of faces among us who have not been here in a while because of various illness and such. Uh, Thank the Lord for uh, seasons that pass uh, like that and his faithfulness. Uh, We return this morning to John chapter 4. We will finish the fourth chapter this morning. So I'll invite you to open up to John 4 and starting in verse 43. Jesus and his disciples have now made it up into Galilee. They had left the region of Judea and had to pass through Samaria and we've been with them in Samaria now for for a couple of weeks. I think it's helpful uh, before we read the text together to understand a comparison that we're supposed to be seeing uh, in the passage that we're about to to come to. Uh, We're gonna read in verse 44. Do you see verse 44 there? It may even be in parentheses in your uh, in your version. Uh, Jesus' testimony that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. That word hometown uh, often means hometown, the actual town you're from. It just as often means homeland, uh, the, the region, uh, the land that you're from. Uh, not necessarily a particular town. So we'll get into it when we get there. But this is not in John here. A reference to the town of Nazareth. It's a reference to re-entering Jewish territory after having come out of the Samaritan land. Uh, and the comparison that we're supposed to see here is a comparison between how he was received in Samaria and how he is received by the Jews. Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own in his own hometown. So setting up the scene as he comes back into Jewish territory. Um, So despite the fact that this is going to start off with Jesus receiving a welcome, as we're about to read, if we hear verse 44 correctly, we should be expecting, as the readers, we should be expecting something of a poor state of things in Galilee. With that in mind, let's read together verses 43 to 54. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. John continues in this way, beginning in verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our our passage this morning focuses on the kind of belief that's on display in the region of Galilee. That much is clearly true. I, I find it easy to say, though, that God would not intend us this morning to hear this description and to take it as intended to be solely describing the region of Galilee in this time. It's not why he has captured it in his word and given it to us. What we're seeing, really, on display is the kind of belief that is very characteristic of mankind. We are very good naturally. We're very good at being intrigued by something that we see, being drawn into something with interest, especially if it draws us with self-interest. We're good at that. And what that means, then, for this morning is that we're going to be seeing Two kinds of belief set before us. One of them is going to come toward the end of this account. One of them will be the kind of belief that this official will display by the end of our time this morning. He will display a true belief. But on on the other hand, the other kind of belief, and really the more focused on kind in our text here, is a false belief. God's word is describing to us and holding out an example of a false belief. And so as we see that on display this morning, it's a very good opportunity for us. It gives us a chance to think more deeply about what really distinguishes true belief from false belief. False belief, as we're going to see, is a sort of belief. The Bible will speak about a false belief and use the word belief. It's a sort of belief, but it's a deficient belief, and it's what Jesus will be calling this official away from this morning. This is the belief, if we're taking verse 44 then, this is the belief of Jesus' homeland that we have on display here as we look at the nature of false belief. And we can say this morning three things about it as we walk through our text. The first we see in verses 43 to 45. And what we see about false belief is this. False belief is genuinely intrigued but untrustworthy. Genuinely intrigued but untrustworthy. Look again at verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now John gives us several important details here as he is again setting up the interaction that's about to happen. Jesus and the disciples have completed the journey that they had begun. They arrive up in the north in Galilee. And verse 44 inserts this reference uh, it's, it's interesting to notice, Jesus doesn't actually say it here. John mentions that he said it. Uh, it's what we see in verse 44, that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown or his own homeland. I think it's helpful for us to clear something up here about verse 44 because it starts with, probably in all of your Bibles, it starts with the word for. And that, I think that can be a little bit misleading. The word is there. It does say for. But when we hear the word for, we usually automatically assume there's some kind of a causal connection going on here, like a because kind of thing. And there's really not any way to see a causal connection as to what he says there in in verse 44. uh, That's the reason why, for example, the NIV puts this as uh, now. Now Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. The Holman Christian Bible just omits it and says, Jesus himself had testified. Um, th- th- I think they're making the right move when they do that. The word for is there. Uh, but often that word is used in the New Testament to set up an explanatory statement. And it's not trying to give a causal relationship. And that seems obviously what it's doing here. Uh, I'll give you another example of this. Mark 16.4 says this, it says, um, this is speaking about Jesus' tomb and the resurrection, and it says looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and then it literally says, for it was very large. The The word's there, but it wasn't rolled back because it was very large, it's just pointing out that the stone was massive, right? So the ESV in that case leaves four out and it just says, it was very large. That's the right thing to do. So in verse 44, maybe these words are only for someone like me who would get needlessly tripped up on these sorts of things. What's the for there? Um, Don't let that trip you up. Verse 44 is giving explanatory information to us. And that's why it starts with this word. It's information that's going to help explain what is coming. Now that is important for all of us to notice. There's something about... Jesus' statement that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown that is relevant to this encounter that's coming. That's why he gives it to us. Now what's interesting then is that on the surface, given what Jesus said in 44, verse 45 can be something of a surprise to us. I would expect verse 44 to follow with a story of rejection. After all, he's setting us up by telling us that a prophet has no honor in his own homeland, and here he has come into Galilee. But in verse 45, what we get is So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. What is this about? And the key here is to notice why they're welcoming him. What does verse 45 tell us about the reason that they're welcoming him? Look at what it says. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. We're meant to recognize this is a welcome stemming from the Jerusalem feast during the Passover. And John's already described that to us. Look back at the end of John 2. What was that like as Jesus engaged with the Jewish people there. Look at John 2 and find verse 23. What was the nature of their reaction to Jesus there? This group that includes the Galileans that he's coming across now. Verse 23, we read this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. If you were here with us back then, you might remember, this was not just the temple cleansing. If your eyes are looking around there, you see the temple cleansing event. It was more than that, though. We read here that Jesus performed a number of signs. And as the signs were seen, it says, many believed in his name. So sight of the miraculous created great intrigue. And from this intrigue and amazement came belief. Many believed. The question is, what kind? What kind of belief? And we get the answer. We get all the answer we need from Jesus' reaction in verse 24 there, don't we? Of John 2. This is how that continues. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. This was not a belief that endeared itself to Jesus as it's on display. It's a belief that if we were to talk about it today, in our parlance, we would would feel the need to insert the word profess or professing. They professed belief. What do we mean when we talk like that in our day? We talk about a Professing believer, or that someone is professing faith. Sometimes that's in the context of hope. Oftentimes it's in the context of skepticism, right? Questioning that the genuineness of that faith. We use that word to cast sometimes to cast doubt on the genuineness of the belief. But it begs a very interesting question, and this is one of the questions that I think this passage is so helpful for us in, in training us and having us. Evaluate our own thinking. What do we mean when we talk about professing believers? What do we think is going on? Are we suggesting that there's a large group of people going around claiming with their mouth to trust Christ, but secretly inside they're snickering to themselves, and they're saying, boy, I really pulled a fast one on them. They don't suspect a thing. Is that what we are envisioning when we talk about a professing believer? When I put it like that, I hope it's helpful, and I hope you agree with me when I suggest that that's probably almost never happening. People who believe, but whose belief is not genuine as Scripture defines it, typically don't think of themselves like that, do they? And I would suggest to you that in this passage this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to gain a great deal of clarity into those situations. Now, so far, though, coming back into chapter 4, from verses 43 to 45, what we're meant to recognize is that the belief that lies behind the welcome here is a belief that is untrustworthy. It's untrustworthy. The raising of Jesus' statement about a prophet in his hometown has already gotten our guard up in that way. And the fact that this welcome is stemming from the experience in Jerusalem gives us further reason not to trust what's going on as Jesus is welcomed by these Galileans. Now, before we go into the second detail that we are given in this text about false belief, uh, let's do pause for a moment on the reality that Jesus references, or that John references Jesus saying. Uh, It's not actually uh, quoted here. Jesus is not quoted as saying that in the Gospel of John, but he is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the Synoptic Gospels. He makes this comment himself, and in those contexts, he is specifically talking about his hometown. He's talking about Nazareth when, when he mentions this in those contexts. It's an interesting question. What is it about a prophet going back home that so commonly produces a lack of the honor and respect that's due that does that so much that for them it had become a cliché. It had become a proverbial statement. A prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Why does that happen so often that, that it has become typical like this? It's not hard for us to imagine, I don't think those people in that town, here comes this prophet, and he grew up there. The people know his reputation. They know his teaching, perhaps, or, or things he has done. But they also remember seeing him when he was in diapers. They saw him grow up. And so now, even though he is a prophet... It's just so commonly true of us. It's so commonly the case that we can't get past our own eyes. We cannot move beyond what we have seen. That This is the typical experience of one who would would be greatly honored anywhere else except in the place where they have seen him in these lesser ways, where they have seen him in, in very different circumstances. In fact, this is exactly the problem that's going on Here in Galilee as well. And Jesus' words are about to make that clear. Uh, Let's keep pursuing that idea. These other, uh, especially this second description that the Bible, that that the passage gives us here, builds on that. Um, the, The second thing that we find about false belief on display here, the belief in his homeland, we find it in verses 46 to 49. We could describe it like this we could say that this false belief is a belief that walks by sight and not by faith. Look again at verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And we'll stop there. We're now introduced to this official. He is from Capernaum, which is something like 17 to 20 miles from Cana, where Jesus is here. So he's traveled that distance. That's a doable travel, but you have to be intentional. And we find on display a reality that we are all to one degree or another familiar with because we're all progressively being forced to recognize this in our own lives. It's the reality that a a true experience of the human condition, a true experience of what it is to live in a fallen world and to live in, in fallen bodies an increasing and true experience of that is the great humbler of men. What does it take to 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 bring a naturally arrogant, haughty uh, mind uh, perspective about oneself? and bring them low, uh, haughty in terms of what they think they ought to expect from life, what they think they are capable of, the amount of control they believe themselves to have over their environment, over their experiences. All it takes is a little bit of life because you're quickly hit with things like illness, with things like accident, with things like disappointment. And no matter what you thought you were capable of controlling, you realize that it is not the case. What we have here is a royal official probably one who served in Herod's court. And so desperate is this man, as his son lay dying, that he travels 20 miles to plead for help from a carpenter. He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death there's an operative element of his request here that can be easy to gloss over. It's the request for Jesus to come. I hope we'll see as we go through, this is, this is a big part of what Jesus is going to focus in on. The man makes the request for Jesus' help, but he asks him to come, come down and heal his son. And Jesus' reply shows We get a display here of his ongoing discontentment with the state of belief that the Jews are displaying. Uh, But he uses this man simply as a representative example of all of them. He speaks to him in verse 48, but he speaks to him about the whole group. Jesus said to him, Unless you, plural, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This is a criticism, it's not a compliment. And it's a criticism about the group. This is your problem. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now we need to think a lot about what he intends there. And we need to not miss the word see. Unless you see. When he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Here's what he's not doing. He is not saying. What a shame that you will Put saving faith in me if you see signs and wonders. That's not what he's saying. What a shame that in that circumstance, when you see that, you will believe in me savingly. That would be nonsense. The purpose of signs is to point people to God that they would see, that they would perceive, and that they would believe. That's the purpose of signs, it would be good for them to see a sign and to believe in him as a result, wouldn't it? That's not the problem he's getting at. You remember what he said to Nicodemus in John 3.3? You might be able to see it even without turning the page there. Here's what he said back then. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't see it. He has been telling the Jews already. They don't understand their true problem. That's looking back. Look ahead with me for just a moment. I think there's a statement in John 6 that Jesus makes that helps to clarify what we're seeing here. We'll read two different verses. First, John 6, 14, to set up what he's about to say. John 6, 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, you see the context there, you see see the miracle on display. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, I read that first simply to ask one question. Did they or did they not perceive the miracle that had just taken place? Do they think that the the bread just passed to them and they got some food? Or did they perceive that something miraculous had just happened here? They, They saw it, didn't they? They understood that something supernatural had just been displayed to them. Now look down at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, what does that mean? If they were there, and if they, I mean, they ate the bread themselves, and they perceived that a sign had been done, a miracle had taken place, what does he mean when he says that they aren't seeking him because they saw signs? We, we talked about this at the introduction of this study on John. and these events that happen, these miraculous events that John calls signs over and over again, the other Gospels call them miracles. They call them powerful works or mighty deeds. This is the word for miracle. John never once calls them that. Not because they aren't displays of mighty power, but because what he's trying to do is to, to highlight for us the fact that these, these signs play a role not just of demonstrating power, but of pointing to who Christ is. That's what they are doing. That's why he calls them signs over and over. But these people, they keep seeing things, but they don't see them. They see them, but they don't see them. They can't see them. So when Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe, what he's condemning is the posture, the self-righteous posture that they have that says to him, prove it to me. Prove it to me. Show me something, I'll believe, prove it to me. He will keep working signs through this gospel. They will keep asking for signs. All the way, we'll see it the whole time. We'll see it until the cross. He will hang on the cross and they will say then, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They will never stop saying that, and he's condemning them for, it, for the posture itself, for the self expectation. In other words, they're receiving him in Galilee here with a belief that will only ever go as far as it's able to see. It will respond to physical sights. It has, and it will, but it will never progress past physical sight to spiritual realities because it is blind to them, although it doesn't know it. Jesus gives this condemnation about their own expectation and the servant simply repeats his request. Do you see that? Sir, come down before my child dies. And what Jesus proceeds to do is to take this man as a representative of the group and to challenge him in a way that directly confronts all that we have just been describing he challenges him in a way that confronts this deficient kind of belief that leads us to the third demonstration concerning false belief here the first two were sort of descriptions this third one is the need what is required In this condition. In verses 50 to 54, what we see about false belief is that it must choose to take God at His word. It's when we have understood the significance of seeing here, what Jesus already said in John 3, what He's condemning them for here. It's when we've perceived that, um, that we can appreciate what Jesus does here with this man and why. And you can see it uh, simply in verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. That's how he responds to this twofold desperate plea that he would come. Do you see what he's just done? He has not accommodated to their false deceived insistence that they will believe if they're only given to see something else. He's not accommodated to that. In fact, what he's done is he has refused to show anything. He will not go down with this man. He has demanded that this man leave his own son's life in (coughs) in Jesus's hands, take him at his word, And go home. It's what Leon Morris calls a stiff test. Another commentator writes this. He says, if the man had turned irritably and petulantly away. If he had been too proud to accept a rebuke. If he had given up despairingly on the spot. Jesus would have known that his faith was not real. And I think that that's a good point, noticing the test nature of this. Makes me think really of Jesus' words elsewhere where someone comes with great confidence and he says, all this you have done, this, this, this one thing you lack, right? You remember that? Go and give everything that you have to the poor and come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And he stands and waits. And the man turns and walks away, greatly saddened. There's a test element of this here. I would want to slightly change the wording, though, of what that commentator wrote. That man said, Jesus would have known that his faith was not real. I think maybe it's better to think of it like this. Here is the moment. Here is the moment where that man's faith itself is or is not. Where it is made manifest whether it is real or not real. Here is where Jesus made his claim, demanded trust, and now this man either trusts him or he doesn't. He either trusts him or he doesn't. And then we see the next sentence. Now hear it in that light of what exactly Jesus is pushing on, what he's calling this man to. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man believed, it says. How? How did he believe? Did he believe like they believed back in chapter 2 verse 23? It can't be. Because there's been no visible show for eyes to lock onto and for false belief to hang on to. This is true belief. Because it is implicitly trust. It is taking him at his word. It's faith that is moving beyond sight. And in fact, that's emphasized, isn't it? John writes that that he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And that belief was put into action as the man nods his head, turns, and goes on his way. There are some other details here that convey the genuineness of his faith because genuine faith is not simply a matter of what I say. It affects all of how I would operate then on the basis of that knowledge, that claim that I am believing. For example, notice the timing of his 17 to 20 mile return trip home. Look beginning at verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. The seventh hour is one o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus told him at 1 p.m. that his son would live. And this man chose to trust his word, and he went away. And I mean he trusted him. One of the ways we know that is how he left. He didn't leave in the same panicked, anxiety-ridden frenzy that he came with. We can tell that because he meets his servants the next day on the way home. 17 miles, it's a ways to go on foot. If You start at 1 o'clock and you're in a dead panic, you can make it. Here he is the next day still on his way home when his servants meet him. He is not leaving in the kind of panic that is unbefitting of someone who trusts the man who just told him, your son will be well. I would suggest to you there's um, a lot to sink into us this morning in our own context. One simple thing may be this. Let it sink in that this is what God wants. Your God wants this in your life. This is what Jesus came and called people to. God wants His people to show their trust in Him by taking Him at His word and taking Him at His word in real life, on-the-ground situations. We're talking about the sort of genuine trust that leads to actions and decisions not made out of fear, anxiety, uh, the sense of a need for pragmatism, You know what I mean when I say that? The kind of decision made where I feel uneasy about this, but there's nothing else I can do. It's all on me to make this happen in a particular way I desire, so I guess this is how I will... A genuine trust leads to choices not driven by these sorts of emotions, by these sorts of of frameworks of thinking. Sometimes we can get to least I can. Maybe you're like me. I can be at places sometimes where I would would genuinely say that I want to please the Father who loves me. I think sometimes we can say that though and in our minds there can be a little bit of fuzziness, maybe vagueness as to what that actually means in practice. I do think I genuinely want to please him. What does that mean? What does that mean today? this morning is one of those passages that can clear up that sort of vagueness of thought. What he wants. I so appreciate these kinds of general statements that are so widely uh, applicable. What pleases him greatly is that his people would trust him. Really trust him like this. Take him at his word. There's another situation recorded in Matthew and Luke, that is very similar to this, similar enough that some have tried to suggest that it's the same event. It's definitely not the same event, because there are too many important differences. Um, But uh, what's fascinating is to see it, to hear it, set apart from the passage we've just been in this morning. You'll notice several important differences here. Look over at Luke chapter 7 for just a moment. This one, there's, there's illness, near death, a plea for Jesus to heal. Those are the similarities. This time it's a servant. It was a son for us in John 4. It'll be a servant. The most important difference, though, is the difference of the attitude in the two men that are at the heart of this account. Let me read, starting in Luke 7, verse 2. I'll read down to verse 10. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. Verse 9, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. When you hear... An account like that, 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 um, that so pleases our Lord, like that, does that produce something in you? Doesn't doesn't an account like that in the ears and the minds of God' people, God's people, doesn't it stir us to want to display the same kind of faith that we see on display there? We'll end with, with two answers to one question. The question is, how can we do this? How can we do this better? I pray that we sense the rightness of a life implicitly taking God at his word, trusting his promises far beyond what our own eyes see and give validation to. I trust that we see the rightness of that. I pray that we sense the desire for that in our own lives and that we sense that this is a place where we, can, we need to grow. I sensed that just deeply this week in thinking about this, how much I need to grow in these ways. How can we do this better? And we'll simply end with two answers to that question. There are probably more. The first thing we can do in order to better accomplish this, to better live out this kind of true faith, trust, has to be this we have to know exactly what we have been promised. We don't have, for example, we don't have specific promises from Jesus Christ, do we? Concerning the outcome of a particular sickness. Attempting to do something like this this morning, in that case, declaring God's healing, for example, in a case, and deciding to really trust, I mean, operate on the basis of my certainty that he is going to heal in this case. That would not be faith, would it? It would be presumption. It would be putting God to the test, which is a sinful thing for God's people to do. But it would be that because God's Word has never given us a promise concerning that particular illness. So, what exactly has God promised you? Do you have a clear answer to that in your mind? To the extent that you don't, or that you sense, as we all doubtless do, that you sense some deficiency in your your real conscious understanding of what exactly God has promised you, don't you think that would be a worthy study to undertake? How on earth can I hope to take God at his word if I don't even know the sorts of promises that he is asking me to trust him in? That has to be a crucial part of growing in this. We have to know exactly what we have been promised. Secondly, and finally, we have to begin to wage war against our own thought life. It's easy to think about our actions when we're considering something like this. But I would suggest that that's not quite right. At least it's not, it's not the right place to, to hit. The place we're really talking about in this is the realm of our thought lives. And that's important to realize because often our default is to, some, to, to sort of assume that our thought life is this other thing, other than me. It's outside of me. It's outside of my control. It just kind of happens. Certainly, it's outside of my sphere of stewardship before God, and therefore outside of my responsibility. My friend, it is not. It's not. Do you know that you will answer to God for your thought life? So the question for this morning, then, is, in that case, what do you say to your own thoughts when they begin to doubt God's promises? Do you just sit there and say nothing? Let them lie comfortably? Or do they come under immediate attack? They ought to come under immediate attack. Don't worry about coming across a bit schizophrenic. You should be arguing with yourself. When your thought life begins to dishonor and fail to trust God's promises, it should be met with backtalk right away. And you don't even really have to try that hard to be polite because it's you. So there's real benefit there. The gloves can kind of come off a little bit. That's nice. We must be settled in that conviction, and we must be busy battling our own sinful thought lives, bringing it Just as much as I bring my hands or my eyes, bringing it into submission to God's word. Training myself to trust him meaningfully with action. What God's word calls us to this morning is maybe in a way refreshingly intimate to us individually. Our life can sometimes feel very overwhelming, can't it? when we think of all of what we are called to walk in obediently. But what we see this morning is, at the heart of all of it, is only this. It's very intimate, it's very direct, and in a sense, simple. He calls his people to trust him. He calls us to take him at his word. It's this Sense this understanding that brings the weight out of what Seth read to us at the beginning before prayer, which I'll read now in closing. 1 Peter 1, verses 5 to 7. It speaks of God's children. It says, Those who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what we're here for. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask you, in light of what you have shown us in your word, in light of how you have fed us, we ask you simply for this, this morning. God, grant us here in this body, by means of your word, transforming us, grant it to us, we ask, that we would come to trust you more, and that we would trust you, we would believe you Not with a false belief that walks as far as our eyes confirm. No, that we would trust you with a trust that is so settled in your reliability, in your truthfulness, in your power. That we believe your promises no matter what we see. We question our own eyes before we question your promises. God, grant through your spirit that we, your people, would grow in that way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.